Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your kindness, your goodness to us. Lord, thank you that you use your word to be a truth that we rest upon, that you work in our hearts and lives through it, that the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures to us. And today we ask that you would work in our lives, meet us right where we're at, that we'd have ears to hear, and that even as James prayed and as the book of James says, that we wouldn't just necessarily be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of the word. You would work in our lives. Amen. 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 Hey, well, we've been looking at the life of Joseph, and it's kind of how this whole section of Genesis is going to finish out here uh, the next couple of weeks. But if you missed last week, you're jumping in halfway through, and I apologize a little bit for that. We just had too much. But if you don't know much of the story of Joseph, he was a man that who very early on rose to prominence within his family. He was the uh, 11th of 12 boys. He was the favorite son of his father's favorite wife. And yes, his father had multiple wives and concubines. It was an awful, ridiculous situation. And as this favoritism was shown, he was a man that was given a lot of authority and a lot of power in his family. The Bible talks about, and if you went to Sunday school and had those felt boards, this coat of many colors, or possibly this coat of big sleeves, regardless of what it actually looked like and pertained to, he was a man who in his family had the desk job. He made the business decisions. He directed his family and all of his older brothers. They worked for him, essentially. Now, as a 15, 16, 17-year-old, how did this go for him? Not well. Not well at all. A man with a lot of power and authority became a very prideful, arrogant narcissist. He was a man that when given dreams, not once but twice, did he share these dreams of how his family is going to bow down before him. Now, in my household, if my son shares that with me and he is five, that's not going to go over real well, is it? I'm like, ah, Benny, I just don't know. Well, the scriptures tell us that his brothers hated him more and more and more. So what did they do? They threw him in a pit. They wanted to murder him. The oldest, Reuben, who was to be looking out for the family, he said, just hold on to him while I'm away. And he had in his heart, determined that they were going to just teach him a lesson, but then set him free. But before Reuben could get back, there was some Ishmaelites traveling through, and they said, why not make a buck off our brother? And they sold him into slavery, where he went to Potiphar's house. There in Potiphar's house, we read he's this captain of the guard, which seems like he's a you know, elevated mall cop of some sort. But it was much greater than that. He would have been a general leading the charge of what was most likely the most powerful, influential government of its day. Powerhouse country, powerhouse nation there in Egypt. And we're told that Joseph rose to prominence because God was with him in that house. And Joseph himself said, I had access to everything in this house except for Potiphar's wife. She's off limits. Well, if you know the story, she tries to sleep with him. And we saw last week there was two temptations that were presented before our guy Joseph. The power temptation. That was, he had control. He had that same sort of authority once again, but he acts in a way of humility. He doesn't just simply take what he thinks should be his. 
He doesn't take Potiphar's wife. He doesn't take things that are out of his control. He's not arrogantly ruling over people. The power temptation. We saw Potiphar's wife, she succumbed to that. The way she spoke to Joseph and demanded and wanted. Then we also saw the sexual temptation there, which is before him. And we got into this idea of the third temptation. If you want to know about the power temptation, the sexual temptation, you can go back and listen to that from last week. But we left Joseph off in a really terrible place. It says in chapter 39, right around verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. He ends up in prison because he doesn't give in to temptation. He runs away with her holding on to his cloak and in an embarrassment and shame and to cover her own tracks, she says, this servant who my husband has elevated, this Hebrew, he's not one of us. He has, he has tried to rape me. And you look at Joseph and you have to wonder if there wasn't a moment in his story in his life where he went, I just can't win, can I, God? I'm an arrogant, prideful jerk and I get thrown in a pit and I do everything right and now I get thrown into prison. You have to wonder if there wasn't a moment in his life where he didn't scream and cry out to God and say, where are you, God? Why aren't you working in my life? Yes, when I was a spoiled, selfish brat, maybe I can understand a little bit why my brothers treated me the way they treated me. But here in this household, I'm looking to honor you, to serve you. You could have stricken her down dead, right? That could happen, God. You could have shut her mouth closed. You could have made it to where nobody walked in. Why am I going through what I'm going through. And I wonder how many of us think we do the right thing, we've done the moral thing, and it still comes back to bite us. And here's the third temptation we see in the life of Joseph. And it's probably the greatest temptation that we all face. The hardest temptation is the temptation to despair. It's the temptation to despair. You see, in his life, things went really, really well for a season, and then it just blows up all at once. And now in this place of being put into prison, the temptation to despair sinks deep within him. Why? Because I'm getting what I don't deserve. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip over to Psalm 73. If you follow us on Facebook, I encourage you to read this this week to prepare our hearts for worship prepare our hearts for this gathering because we find the psalmist in the exact same kind of position. He starts out saying, truly God is good to Israel. That's kind of like if you're journaling, God, I know that you're really good. God, Father, I really, really love you to those who are pure in heart. But then he says in verse two, but as for me, God, you're so good to Israel. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches, all in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? How is David doing right now? He is terrible. He looks out at the world around him and he goes, God, this makes no sense. I've kept my heart pure. I've been a mostly moral man. We all know about Bathsheba. That wasn't a great mark in his life, the murder of Uriah. But let's just, for a second, I've been a man after your heart, but look at the wicked and look at how they prosper. Look, they do everything wrong. Why shouldn't I just kind of join in with them? He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now what happens in Psalm 73 verse 16 is there is a massive shift in his view. And he goes from this place of self-loathing this place of woe is me, this place of despair because I've done it right, God, and I'm still seeing everybody else getting what they don't deserve and I'm not getting what I actually deserve. And I wonder how many people feel Psalm 73, the first 15 verses are so pressing in their life right now. Why are things unfolding the way they are? Then he says in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And you can read the rest of it. But what this guy does is he goes into the sanctuary of God and it gives him a new perspective. Rather than simply sinking deeply into despair when he sees what everybody else is doing, he's able to lift himself up, not by looking inward at his own self, not by looking outward at what everybody else is doing, but by looking upward to who God is and what God is doing. By understanding the end fate of the unrighteous versus those who have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. By knowing that the story doesn't simply end with the wicked prospering, but with the king coming with his kingdom, ruling and reigning. And it changes his attitude and mindset from a place of despair. And if you don't know what despair is, just this utter helplessness, this self-loathing, nothing can go right in my life, everything is falling apart. Where do I turn to? That's where he was sitting at, and then he goes into the sanctuary, and his mindset changes. See, this place of despair is a massive temptation for any and everybody, and especially for Christians. Especially for Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can have those highs and lows as life kind of goes up and down, and you expect that to come your way. Of course, it's gonna be good and bad. But at some point along the way, some well-meaning discipler, some well-meaning teacher 
has taught you because of God's love in your life, nothing really wrong is going to happen. Just come to Jesus, pray it through with me. We'll say a few things and you're his and it's all good. Crisis proof, crisis free. Nothing is going to happen. But we see even in the life of the psalmist here who is a man after God's own heart, that he goes through difficulty and hardship. And here's where the temptation comes in. Does God really love you if you get thrown in a pit? Does God really love you if you do the right thing and you still end up in prison? Does God really care about you if at work you stood up for his name's sake and because of that you got looked over for a promotion, you got passed over for another job? Does God really care about you if you feel that your marriage is unraveling and falling apart, that your kids aren't walking with the Lord? Does God really love you? And in the moment of despair, this temptation, this voice comes whispering in and it challenges the very goodness, love, care, and concern of God. If you are a child of God, everything in your life would be fixed. If you are a child of God, you wouldn't go through tough circumstances. And the enemy doesn't want you to know that through Christ, you are a child of God. He doesn't want you to know that you can be completely accepted because of what God has done. For your own reading later on, go to Luke 4. Jesus in the wilderness at the end of his fast. Satan comes and tempts him three different times. And you can look at it, he tempts him, and he says, man, you're hungry, why don't you eat some bread? Just turn these rocks to stone. Hey, the kingdom of the world, I'll give to you. Just take it from me. You don't have to go to the cross Oh, protection, jump off the highest point of the temple and the angels will keep you from getting hurt. You see, in each one of those temptations as presented to Jesus is to question the very goodness of the Father. You wouldn't be hungry and suffering if God was good. You wouldn't have to go to the cross if God was good. There would be no pain or suffering if God was good. Satan challenges the very goodness of God. If you are a child of God, you wouldn't have to go through this. Poor you, turn to despair. And Jesus says, that's not true. Temptation begins. Temptation starts with self-pity. Woe is me. God, you haven't given me what I think I should have. It's not mine yet. And it gets whispered into your ear, ear, take it, whatever it actually is. Self-pity is a refusal to be grateful, a refusal to look at what God has done and what God has already given you. I want you to think about this in terms of Genesis chapter 3. When Satan there comes to Eve in the garden and he says, look at what God has made. No. Look at this wonderful place he created for you. Look at everything you get to enjoy here. No, that's not what he says to her. He says, Eve, is it true that you can't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? Poor you, Eve. Woe is you. 
Forget all this wonderful creation around you. Satan comes and he hits that, tempts with this idea of despair and self-pity. You can't actually have everything. God is withholding something good from you. For the day that you eat of it, you will become like him. He is keeping that from you, Eve. Adam, he's not letting you fully in with the knowledge that will deepen you. And Eve, she begins to rebuke him, it almost sounds like. But she tags on this idea. We may eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, but we can't eat of that one or touch it. Did God say she can't touch it? We don't have that in Scripture. We don't hear that. And she adds to his words there, and she twists them a little bit. And in the most subtle way, she's already entered into that spirit of temptation because of what Satan has planted in her. She's already starting to feel sorry for herself. We can't eat it and we can't touch it. Woe is us. Woe is us. Self-pity that begins to enter in. And it starts small. But we see this sense of temptation. And then you begin to resent the very words of God. Well, why can't I have that? Why shouldn't I be able to touch and eat of the tree? Why shouldn't I? And you can go down the list of why shouldn't I that you can think of. And what people need to look at in this whole situation and approach it in a way with a little bit of humility in their life. Because a lot of people say, you know what? It's very hard what God is doing or allowing in my life. Why can't I just have a little bit of fun here on the side? This temptation that's come my way, why can't I just listen to it and engage in it? It entices, it satisfies me in the moment. And we begin to feel sorry for ourselves. Listen, it's a very good possibility that your inability to trust God is actually an unwillingness to mistrust your own judgments. Our inability to trust God is an unwillingness to mistrust our own judgments. What do I mean by that? We are so sure of our judgments. We are so sure that we're making the right decisions for our lives. Or how about this? We are so sure of how life is actually supposed to go for us. Now, if you're Joseph and you're given these dreams at 17, that your family is going to bow down before you, that you're going to raise to a place of prominence, I'll tell you how he's probably picturing it. Some horses, some chariots, and an easy way to the top. This is going to be good. This is going to be great. But what does God do? He has to go through a pit, a Potiphar's house, and a prison before he actually gets to the palace. In his own judgments, he could have said, God, this is not how it's supposed to happen. God, this is not how it's supposed to go down in my life to, right now. I wasn't supposed to miscarry that child. I wasn't supposed to have that broken relationship. What are you doing, God? You don't know. And we have this problem. We don't trust God because we won't mistrust our own judgments about the way life should go. We are so sure that we're supposed to marry that person, that we're supposed to have that baby, that we're supposed to move to that town and get that job, and we don't get it, and we turn to self-loathing, we look inward, and we forget how good God actually is in our lives. Or we look at what the world is partaking in, and we know that God's true word has said, don't go down that road. Don't do that. It'll bring destruction and death into your life. 
and we are enticed by the temptation of power, enticed by the temptation of sex, and we think, why can't I? Why shouldn't I? What does it hurt if I just go outside of how God has actually ordained this to actually happen? Why not? I should be having it. Everybody else is. And we find our hearts getting destroyed and ripped apart and broken. Because anytime we go outside of what God has designed and made good, and we pervert it and twist it and use it for our own evil and wickedness, it brings about death. That's what it does. We're not to despair, but we're prone to that temptation because we really mistrust God and we trust our own judgments so, so much. It comes in so subtly. So this morning, as I promised you, what do we do with temptation? How do we handle temptation? If there's the temptation that we see in here of power, the temptation of sex, the temptation to despair when things don't go well, especially when we do everything right and things don't go well, that's the worst one of all. It, it really is. When I was a young kid, parents had this great parenting method. When they would go away and leave us for a little while, <laughs> That was the first thing they did really well, right? Got out of the house, got together, did something fun together, and left my older brother in charge, about six years older. My older brother and sister fought like cats and dogs. They were about 18 months apart. They were arch, just enemies forever, right? And so they're fighting, and I'm always on the wall watching these fights happen. And inevitably, after about an hour, my parents would come home, and the house would just be, I mean, there's been Chinese stars thrown into walls. Um, there's been, like, Plug your ears if you're younger than like 21. We used to take shotgun shells and empty out the BBs and keep the powder in. And we had this tree that overhang and put a rock to it. And a car would start to drive by and we'd drop it. And <laughs> right? <laughs> it was Lauren, not me. <laughs> I'd never do anything bad. So, <laughs> they're buying me lunch today. <laughs> so, so. There, we just, it was, it was trouble. And, and when there was trouble, what would happen, though, is it was typically Lauren and Sharon who were fighting, and she would post her chair by the front door and just wait till mom and dad come home. Lauren's like, whatever, he's going to go do his thing. Well, they would come home, and Sharon would just turn the waterworks on. I did nothing. And you know what happens? You, you, and you go to your rooms. What? What did I do? I did the right thing. I'm just a fly on the wall. We don't know, but you're all in trouble for now. All right? That's just, we're going to get the story, and somehow, I, I don't know, it would come out, whatever happened each and every single time. But, but what I'm trying to say is, things, when you even do the right thing, you're not the one fighting, and you get busted, you're kind of going, Lord, Lord, why? Why does this happen to me? When we resist temptation, why does difficult things still happen? So we're going to look at that and unpack that, but I want to talk about what we do with temptation. In James 1, 14 through 15, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll read it to you. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If you look up temptation on Google, it gives a very similar definition to what the scriptures actually say. Temptation is this strong desire for something, typically not good or morally wrong. That's how they kind of define it there. So it says here that when you're enticed by your own desires, do you not understand that temptation comes from within you, not just from outside of you? 
from within. It's your own desire. So what does that tell us? It tells us we can't simply just manipulate the outside problems around us, but something internally actually has to change within us. If we want to see change, if we don't want to give in to temptation, it can't just simply be, I'm going to block off the websites, I'm going to put parameters around my life. No, an inward change has to happen, enticed by your own desires. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. When does temptation become sin? When you give in. You need to understand this. Because you're going to be tempted, and just because you're tempted, you have an urge, you have a desire, doesn't mean you've actually sinned yet. Having worked with youth a lot of my life, that was kind of the point where like, oh, I'm just tempted anyways, might as well. No, 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 no. Temptation is not sin. For if temptation was sin, then Jesus sinned. And if Jesus sinned, get a better hobby. Because this isn't where you want to be Sunday morning. I promise you that. But because Jesus is without sin, he died and atoned for our sin, right? We have a hope that we can trust him. Temptation is not sin. And the problem with temptation is that it entices and lures us in. It looks so good, but it only brings destruction and death into our lives. We get this deceptive truth that is told by the enemy over and over and over again. It was a half-truth. You'll know good and evil. At the end of the day, that wasn't very good for them, was it? It brought death into their lives. Temptation, when we give into it, will hurt us. So first and foremost, understand temptation is not sin. Number two, if you grew up in church, you may have heard a sermon before that when you're tempted, be like Jesus and quote scripture and it goes away. How's that going for you? Let me just ask. How is that really going for you this morning? So I drive by the car a lot, and I'm like, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not covet. And I just want this brand new truck, all right? Thou shalt not covet. It, you, you would think that if we just say it, it would somehow stop it. That's kind of what I was taught. It almost feels like if you are, once again, uh, talking about Lord of the Rings here, I apologize. But if you've ever seen that Saruman and Gandalf battle where they start sh shouting at one another, different kinds of spells at each other, that's what we feel like is going on. Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not set no unclean thing before my eyes, thou shalt not do this. And we think that if we just quote scripture, somehow this temptation will dissipate and disappear like it's a Harry Potter battle. Wicca kind of enchantments that we can share with other, with our temptations, our desires, and they dissipate in our lives. I was working with a young guy and on his laptop he had, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes, Psalm 101.3. Like, how'd that go for you? Not very good. So I put Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully on a woman. How'd that go for you? Not very good. <laughs> okay, so look. Let me talk to you about how we use scripture and why people kind of have this idea of we just quote scripture. Jesus did say, Jesus did say when he was tempted there by the enemy that man shall live what? By every word of God, not by bread alone. And then the next temptation comes his way. What is Jesus actually doing? This desire that would have been in his heart to eat after 40 days, pretty big desire. He's saying there's a better desire and it's that God rules my heart. God rules my life. What scripture does is it puts us in remembrance of who God is and who we are when we're tempted. 
What scripture does is it declares that in that moment of temptation and you think, I will set no unclean thing before my eyes, the reason we want to know that is because he is so good. He is so wonderful. He is so perfect. And it's actually to be this idea where God eclipses whatever that desire is within our heart, whatever desires in our life, and causes us to turn and worship him in the moment that he becomes a consuming desire in our lives. It's not this whole idea where I just kind of unlock the code when temptation comes my way. But as I know scripture, it's to set my mind, my heart, my attention, my affection on the God who deserves all my worship. And when I'm to stray from that, being brought back into understanding who God is and what God has done, that's where scripture becomes incredibly encouraging in my lives. It reminds us that our relationship with God is a living, vibrant, all-powerful relationship to this all-powerful God that scripture leads us deeper into. The power of the Holy Spirit moving in us. There's nothing better than bread. There's nothing better than his living word that could just sink into us when we're tempted. When we're tempted to yell at our children and our spouse because it feels so dang good to be in control and exert that authority but then to be reminded of no, there's nothing better than God. He's even better than the control. He's better than the power that it feels like that brings in that moment. My goodness, if we could just grasp this concept and idea and see how the word of God begins to change us and how good God is. That's why, that's why we get this idea of we quote scripture when we're tempted, not because it's some code to unlock the magic key to not give into temptation, but because it reveals who God is in our hearts and lives. The next thing we see we do with temptation is the only way to push out a strong desire is by having a stronger desire come into us. Let me just kind of illustrate this with the uh, wonderful example of food and dieting. I love delicious, savory, good food. And it's just so hard to say no to that. I'm also on this calorie count right now. So I've got this idea where my doctor has come to me and he said, listen, your cholesterol is through the roof. You need to do some things. Okay, that's health, that's pretty important. But do you know how good steak fajitas are? And, and how much I can actually consume of steak fajitas? And so there's two competing desires in my life in that moment. Steak fajitas are a huge competing desire in my life. So is my health, my longevity, and my children. And in that moment, when it's presented to me, one of those desires is going to win out. They both cannot win out. Only one desire can win out in my life. And it's the stronger desire of the two that is going to win. So when that temptation comes and those flavors are presented before me, and I'm thinking, this will make me feel comforted. This will make me feel healthy and good inside. And I mean, something really bad is actually happening, but this is how this will make me feel in the moment. There's competing desires going on. How? How do you do the right thing? One desire has to be stronger than the other desire. Do you know that's how it is with sin? Whether it's sins of pleasure, sins of covetousness, 
sins of just arrogance and pride, sins of taking advantage of people because of how it makes you feel. One desire is going to rule the other desire. Which desire wins? The stronger of the two desires always wins. Always wins. So how are we actually going to change if the weaker desire is the one that loses? We must understand that the only way, the only way to push out that weak desire is by one that is stronger. What do you guys think that is? It's our love for Jesus Christ. We need a power outside of ourselves that moves within us in order to overcome those temptations within our lives. We can't just simply transfer to another desire. I mean, they're like, yeah, you can eat salad, Brett. I will put as much steak on that salad as I can and be like, it's salad, babe. It's good, right? No, it doesn't work. Or we can't just shift it. Something more powerful actually has to come into our lives. So the temptation to sin, to lie, to steal, to cheat, to the bad kind of anger, to hurt those so that we can feel vindictive, that ends in just this rippling result of sin that crushes people. How do we push that out? Our strong desire for Jesus must push that out. So what do we worship in the moment? That's why, that's why we quote scripture. I'm tempted and I cannot live by bread alone but by every word of God. That's what I need in my life. And we must see that Jesus being tempted and always like us, he was actually without sin. And Jesus is not simply a model of how to defeat temptation, but he actually defeated it for you. He defeated sin for you. He went through difficulty. He went through struggle. And in the midst of it, we see God's care for him. We need to understand that God loves, that God cares, and that God is with you in the midst of everything. Here's what's so intriguing about the passage in Joseph's life. He's going to go to prison, and you can read 40 and 41, and he ends up in the prison where Pharaoh sets his own court, his own people, his own guys that have kind of been busted for the things that they've done wrong. Just a commoner prison. And there he rises to a place of prominence, do you understand and know that God was with Joseph all the way through this? And it's easy for us to look at his life and go, well, of course he was, because we have the story, but how about your life? Where is God in your sorrow, in your pain, and in your letdown? Your story hasn't been fully written yet. But we can step back and take a bird's eye view and go, just as God was with Joseph, just as with God is with Joshua, as with Abraham, as with Isaac, as with whoever you want in the scriptures, he is with you. He is with you. And if we can begin to believe that nothing we've done is actually going to derail the plan of God for our lives. And I want that to really sink in because some of us have done some pretty awful stuff and we think, no, I can't get close to him. That's what the enemy wants to say to you. You're not a child. You can't get close. Fear him in the bad way. And he's saying, no, I've ripped the veil. I've given you complete access. You're my child. Come close to me. You haven't screwed up your life so much that the relentless pursuit of God has not chased you down. He cares and loves for you and has accepted you right where you're at, bringing restoration. 
So surrender to his goodness. Surrender to his love. And to close out this morning, I don't want to sit up here and be like, if you just keep beating back temptation, that's how you succeed in life. Or at some point, temptation ceases. I will tell you this, temptation really does allow us to show what we love in the moment, doesn't it? Gives us opportunity to say, Lord, I'm going to turn and praise you. I want to tell you that in temptation, we're to make God the aim of our worship, that he is supreme above all other desires in our hearts and lives because of the mercy he has showed us. I want you to know that in temptation, don't let the enemy accuse you. That's what he always wants to do with temptation. It's accusatory to try to defeat you. But you have this advocate who has fought for you, who's victorious, who has won. We need to learn to be people of gratitude and thankfulness so we don't sink deep into despair and curse God and blame God and be angry with God. I can tell you that because of what Christ has done, that he is our advocate, that the Father sees us as he sees his Son, and that we get to run to God when we do fail, when we do fall in repentance. Because of what Jesus has done, we have one who has fought the war for us, and we get the spoils of victory because of what he has done. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world you'll have sorrow, but take heart, I have overcome this world. This life I promise you is not trouble-free. I would never want to sugarcoat that. But because Christ overcame sin and death, we have that same hope. Because he was tempted in all ways like us, but without fail, we have hope even when we fail. This morning, if you're struggling deeply with temptation, don't run from God, run to God. Absolutely turn to the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God who tells us all we need pertaining to a life of godliness, that he is our hope and that he is to be our strong desire. Run to him. And even if we failed, you run to him because his arms are open wide and we're able to repent, loves and cares for us. We're accepted. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. I know there's so many competing desires in all of our hearts. I know there's good things in our lives that we've made ultimate things that need to be repented of. I know there's wicked things that we're pursuing that need to be turned from. Lord, I pray that you would reign supreme in all of our hearts today that our ultimate aim, our ultimate desire would be for Jesus Christ, that we would enjoy every good and perfect gift that has come from you, that we'd be changed by you, and that this word this morning on temptation would sink deep within our hearts, that none in here would despair, but like the psalmists, they would look in your sanctuary. They would see what they've been given in Jesus Christ, that you have come for us, rescued, redeemed, and ransomed us, that you've given us new life, and we have so much to be thankful and joyful about. Be honored, be glorified as we worship you together. Amen.